A pleasure to welcome our next guest to the program. Andrew and I saw this uh, article uh, on the web a couple of days ago, and in the wake of what we've been doing on this program, uh, it fit right in. The title of the article was Bilingualism, Pathway to Cognitive Reserve, and it's an article written by our next guest who joins us from Toronto, where she is the director of the uh, Walter Gordon Research uh, Chair at the Lifespan Cognitive Development Institute at York University. She is Distinguished Research Professor of Psychology. She is Dr. Ellen Bialystok. Dr. Bialystok, Ellen, good morning and welcome to our show. Good morning. Thank you very much. It is a pleasure to have you with us. Last weekend, we were uh, we were very lucky to have Dr. Donald Weaver join us from the U of T, uh, the competition, if you will, uh, and we got into a, an excellent discussion on Alzheimer's. And when Andrew and I saw your article, Bilingualism, Pathway to Cognitive Reserve, we jumped into it and, and, and read it all. And as I'm going through some of your highlights and references at the end of the, the executive summary, I noticed the first three references were all about Alzheimer's. And I realized at that very early juncture that your research, your brain and cognitive reserve research, is really about Alzheimer's indirectly, isn't it? It is. It is exactly that. Um, You know, there's this general uh, concern everyone has about staying cognitively healthy as we age because there is normal healthy cognitive decline. Everyone past a certain age has noticed it. Mm -hmm. But what really is a shadow over everybody is the fear of developing not normal cognitive aging, but clinically pathological cognitive aging in the form of some kind of dementia. So it's a huge concern for everybody. Cognitive reserve applies to both. But I think people's real fears lie more with the clinical side, the dementia. So cognitive reserve, uh, Dr. Bialystok, is simply a a term to describe our ability to understand? No, let me put it a different way. Uh, First, I have to say that it's a huge issue now in research, and there are groups working on trying to make uh, a standard definition that everyone can use easily. Okay. But here's what I think the most important feature is, and it's quite simple. As we get older, our brains go through various changes, including atrophy, um, losing connections. This is just normal getting old. Our Mm -hmm. brain deteriorates. At the same time, our cognitive abilities slow down, and decline as well. So in normal healthy aging, these two things just chunk all along in, in connection to each other. Our brains get a little worse. Our cognition gets a little worse. Cognitive reserve is the idea that you can put a wedge in them, between them, and keep cognitive level high even as your brain is deteriorating. Ah, So for normal, healthy aging, it means simply uh, sort of doing cognitively better than you should for where your brain is at this healthy uh, type of deterioration. Mm -hmm. But for dementia, it's much more dramatic because if the deterioration of the brain includes something like Alzheimer's disease pathology, that is, the brain is really 
clinically um, disabled, cognitive reserve can keep cognitive level higher than would normally be associated with that level of brain. So it be, it's the same idea. It separates brain level and cognitive level. Right. But when you move into dementia, the, out, the results are far more dramatic because you can have people with real Alzheimer's pathology in their brain but are functioning in a very independent, healthy way, hmm. living independently, not really aware in many cases that they have disease pathology. Interesting. That would suggest that in some way uh, we can we have some control ability over the uh, our, our brain function that perhaps we're unaware of. Well, yes, but I would add very dramatically, very emphatically, that you can't take that too far because it quickly turns into blaming the victim. Okay. Right. So we do have, there are things we can do that um, improve our cognitive function, and, and we'll talk about them. Sure. But there are some things that we simply have no control over. So, yes, we have some control, but there are many things that remain well beyond our control. Yeah, it's interesting. When we spoke with Dr. Weaver last week, um, we I asked him about, uh, because we all stay up too late with too much time on our hands these days, and, <laughs> and, and watch those late-night infomercials. And if you see, especially especially on American TV, uh, you see the, you know, the, the older couple uh, walking along the beach, uh, enjoying life, and you know, they, they, they uh, do crossword puzzles, and they take Product X. And I've been taking right, Product exactly. X every day for seven years years and and my brain feels sharper and healthier and all this kind of stuff and so i asked dr don weaver pointedly do any of do any of these pills do anything for you and his answer was no categorically not and those those commercials really i find them I, i mean to me they cross some kind of line of legality because they'll say clinically proven. Well, no, that's not true. This is all snake oil. There are no drugs that can do the sorts of things that those commercials claim. And and I think, you know, they're preying on exactly what I said earlier. Yeah. People are afraid. Mm-hmm. Everybody, everybody knows somebody who has suffered from one of these terrible diseases. And it, it's a great fear, and we're all getting older, and you know, we're living longer and life is more complex. And I find those commercials to be so irresponsible that I'm not, I don't understand why they're not illegal. There well, is no evidence. Yeah, exactly. But of course, we are a pill-popping society, Dr. Bialystok. Yep. By gosh, yep. if there's a problem, there's got to be a pill for it. And you that's, that right. and yep. that's yep. the sort of mentality that they count on in terms of selling, mass-producing and selling these products to people who basically, I think I agree with you, who are so concerned about their future, uh, their brain yep. health in the future, they're prepared to buy just about anything to try and assure that. You're right. I completely agree with that. But that is exactly what's going on. So, but there are things we can do. So there aren't pills we can, there aren't over-the-counter pills. I mean, my, my goodness, the, the uh, medical research industry has been working for decades, you know, at full speed ahead 
trying to develop uh, pharmacological treatment sure. for Alzheimer's disease, and they're they're nowhere. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is just not not going anywhere fast. Uh, so you know, people are working on this. Very good minds are working on this, but boy, no, nowhere near there yet. So Indeed. this quick fix is really, um, as I said, I think it's irresponsible. But there are things we can do. And here's where I think the research becomes more interesting okay, and more now, promising. And our guest is a distinguished research professor of psychology at the Walter Gordon Research Chair of Lifespan Cognitive Development at York University in Toronto. She is associate scientist at the Rotman Research Institute at the Baycrest Center for Geriatric Care. She is an officer of the Order of Canada and a fellow of the Royal Society of Canada. She is Dr. Ellen Bialystok, who is here to talk to us this morning about cognitive reserve, brain power, uh, and by Bilingualism, as this is a project that we're just learning about in terms of your association with bilingualism, Dr. Bialystok, but this is something that you've been working on for years and have discovered since some time ago that bilingualism, learning a second language, is absolutely fantastic exercise for anyone's brain. It's exactly right, and and it's, it's surprising how much um, it, it, it actually does. And, and the thing is this. It turns out that when you speak two languages, when you're able to communicate in two languages, your brain has to work harder because both languages are always kind of there and wanting to be used and chosen. Mm -hmm. So your brain has to always be attending to which language you need to be speaking now, which one you don't want to interfere, and so on. You're not aware of this. No no bilingual person is sitting there actually thinking, do I speak French, do I speak English? Right. You just go with the flow, mm-hmm. but your brain is in the background. Now, the thing about cognitive reserve is anything that's hard for your brain is good for your brain. Aha. So using your brain, being involved in stimulating activities that require a little more effort from your brain keeps your brain in better shape. And it turns out that just being bilingual requires this extra bit of brain energy to use the language that you need, uh, not choose from the one that you don't need. And Mm -hmm. that little bit of brain um, energy changes the way your brain works. And we've seen this across the whole lifespan, beginning with infants in the first year of life. They don't even speak. But infants in the first year of life who are raised in environments where there's two languages spoken Mm -hmm. are already developing different brain wiring because they have to pay attention to which of the languages is being spoken. Right. So over a lifetime, this just builds up, and it creates a kind of a brain reserve. It's a, a more resilient uh, brain, so that later in life, in, when things start to decline, either through normal healthy aging or, unfortunately, sometimes through disease, mm-hmm. Brains that have built up more of this reserve through a lifetime of stimulating activity, including simply being bilingual, can cope better. They're more resilient. They've got more uh, resources to deal with the, the, the uh, disease uh, 
and and therefore uh, they just do better. So the resources are essentially built in, and it's very interesting, yeah. uh, Doctor Bialystok, that you would use the the one year old infant as the example because you're quite right; they don't speak, they react, right. and they're cute, but they don't. There's not a lot of conversing <laughs> going on. So, but exactly. as as suppose now that child is being raised by a multilingual parent, so mom speaks yeah. one language to the child, dad speaks yeah. the other. Now the child doesn't know that that he or she is being spoken to in different languages that's just the way mom talks and that's the way dad talks and the brain just processes the whole thing yep exactly and in fact you know they know a lot more than you realize so even at the moment of birth at the moment of birth now when the baby before the baby is born in utero uh they can hear that's the one thing that's kind of working and they can't see they can't touch but they can hear interesting And what they hear is sort of the broad outlines of the language their mom is speaking. And they don't hear specific words, but they hear sort of the discourse, the kind of sounds of that language. So at the moment of birth, get this, they can tell the difference between the language they've heard for the last few months and the new language. Mm. And if the mom was speaking two languages, they recognize both of them. Interesting stuff. So there, there's a lot of stuff going on in those adorable baby <laughs> brains um, that set the stage sure. really, for the rest of life. Dr. Bialystok, does it matter what that second language is? And further to that, is uh-huh. multilingualism recommended? For example, is there? can you cross a line and t- try to take on too much, or is it just all fabulous exercise? <laughs> well, you know, this is a little bit of a controversy, and my view is... There's no additional benefit for more languages. Okay. It doesn't just it doesn't just keep adding up. Um, the real benefit is in having more than one language to manage, and uh, that's what creates the conditions for this reserve. It doesn't matter uh, what the languages are. Um, there's okay. studies that compare, you know, people who speak two similar languages with people who speak to entirely different languages, and there's nothing convincing that any of that makes a difference. Sure. There's a little bit of research that wants to suggest that people who speak more languages, so trilingual, quadrilingual people get more benefit than bilingual, but I think that's a bit of a stretch because you don't really... That those studies aren't as well controlled. Is there such a thing as being too late to join the parade in terms oh, of uh, taking on great, the, the task? Right. Great question. So, as I said, um, the reason all of this is so um, helpful is because bilingualism creates a condition in which your brain has to work harder. Yep. And hard for your brain is good for your brain. So, what if you learn a language later, like much later, after 60, after 70? Sure. What happens is you are going on a journey where you create a very complex problem for your brain to solve. Learning languages is hard, mm-hmm. and it gets harder as you get older. So what you're doing is putting yourself in a stimulating situation where you get brain exercise. So that's good. Ah. So learning the language is a good thing. Now, it's not going to make you bilingual. It's not going to put you in a situation where lifelong bilinguals are just automatically 
always having to choose which language they speak, Mm -hmm. you're probably not going to get to that level of fluency. Sure. But if you compare, say you're a 60-year-old and you say, i got to do something for my brain. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm feeling lazy. And here's a list of things you could do. Well, I could do crossword puzzles. Well, all right, that's fine. I could join a club. Well, that's better. Social interaction is great. Mm -hmm. Or I could try to learn another language. Well, that's a really good choice because learning a language is hard, so it's good for your brain, Mm -hmm. but it gives you tools that will enable you to go off and do other things. Travel, talk to new people, read different books, listen to different movies. So, you know, there's a, a number of things that people can do and should do to keep their brains and minds active. But I would say that um, learning another language later in life might be one of the more interesting ones. So stay away from the bogus pills and work on Jean-Tradon <laughs> LaSalle de Classe or some Absolutely. other uh, other <laughs> equal linguistic challenge. Uh, it's fabulous. It's it's great to have you on the program, Dr. Bialystok. I mean, it's very, it, it, it's, it's such a practical, uh, inexpensive, challenging way to approach the kind of concerns and fears so many of us have. Uh, in my life and many others, uh, we have people with dementia and we see the the the, the 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 breakdowns that 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 mm-hmm. cause and you know it scares the hell out of us to be to be quite blunt about it and so we, we 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 start looking around for well I don't want I don't want to go there so I'm going to start mm-hmm. doing things to try and make sure that I don't end up there and you can know I, can I just add one thing sure because I have to make this point clear bilingualism does not prevent dementia of course it's very important to know. it does not prevent it but it does something equally good, and that is it postpones the onset of symptoms. So as the dementia, as Alzheimer's pathology is building up in the brain, typically, and there's now studies from all around the world, so thousands of people have been tested in this in these studies, bilinguals typically show symptoms of Alzheimer's disease around four years later than monolinguals Interesting. with the same level of Alzheimer's in their brain. So it's not going to prevent Alzheimer's mm-hmm. disease, but it's going to give you three or four years where you just go on independently living as though you don't have it. And that's as good as it can get right now. Absolutely. Dr. Bialystok, you're, you're a marvel to have on the program and, and a real source of joy and inspiration. We appreciate mm-hmm. your t- spending a little bit of your time on the weekend with us. Thank you for having me. I enjoyed it. We have another guest to talk to you about. Let me give you a quote from our guest before we bring him on and introduce him. Quote, with the public largely uninformed and disinterested, the media paying only sporadic attention, it's no wonder the Trudeau government has remained silent on the question of NORAD. Yet repeatedly over time, silence backfires on governments when the issues suddenly and unexpectedly explode onto the the public agenda. This is a quote from our guest, Dr. James Ferguson of the Center for Defense and Security Studies at the University of Manitoba, here to talk to us this morning about NORAD and the very peculiar and very consistent silence here in Canada about this subject. Dr. Ferguson, James, good morning and welcome to the program, sir. 
Thanks. It's a pleasure to be here. It's good to have you with us. Now, it's it's not the most engrossing subject of all time, Dr. Ferguson, but this is important stuff because we have a renewal of NORAD coming up. There's a serious tab attached to it, and yet most of us, and I think you're quite right, uh, the public is, your, your, your words, largely uninformed and disinterested. So tell us this morning, Dr. Ferguson, why we should at least be interested, and then we'll take care of the informed part. Well, we should be interested, A, as taxpayers, with the amount of money that's going to cost the government of Canada, uh, NORAD, and, and I should just add, renewal is not right, the right word to use. Modernization okay. is. All right, sure. Re- renewal goes back to when they used to renew the agreement every five years. Uh-huh. Now we don't do that anymore. Anyway, anyway, so there's large amounts of money here. NORAD hasn't really been modernized or significant investments in it since basically in the late 1980s. That's how far back we've just sort of let it go. Secondly, we should be interested because it's a new threat environment out there. We are much more vulnerable today than we were five years ago, ten years ago, and to some degrees even more vulnerable than we were during the Cold War. Mm-hmm. Uh, so... Those two things combined tell me that the public should be interested uh, because this is about the defense and security of Canada. Indeed it is. And it is, of course, NORAD, the North American Aerospace Defense Command. It has been around since when? It was NATO first and then NORAD uh, post-World War II, correct? Right. 1949 was the Treaty of Washington, which established NATO. And then 1957 was the, NORAD came into being operationally and the agreement was then signed in 1958. And, and I recall growing up in, in, in those days and being very excited about all this North American Defense Command. There was a, a, a command center in Colorado, and the command structure was designed to include both Canadian and American uh, officers and ranks. Uh, and it was all very new. Uh, and, and I think that as time has unfolded since those, <laughs> those heady early days, uh, uh, my understanding is... Uh, Canada sort of walked away from mostly financial obligations, and and it's if were it not for the military, we would have walked away from it completely by now. Well, I don't think I I put it exactly that way. Uh, we arranged very good financial uh, with the United States. So basically, today the way this works is that for any infrastructure related to NORAD that's built in Canada, the U.S. pays sixty percent, we pay forty percent. Okay. And any NORAD infrastructure built in the United States, the Americans pay it all. So oh. it's a very good financial arrangement for us. Certainly it is. Now, uh, we're talking... Uh, I'm sorry. There's been no real... I mean, governments, at times during renewals, there would be this attention paid to NORAD and left-wing opposition, usually to being involved with the American imperialists, such as all that nonsense back from the Cold War. Right, yes. Uh, most of the time, the governments have been satisfied with NORAD in a way since the end of the Cold War, didn't know what to do with it, but figured we shouldn't let this go away because you never know about the future. Right. So now we're at a, a, a point where we have to modernize. There's something called the North Warning System, which uh, is in need of modernization to the tune of about $11 billion, of which, or for which, will be responsible for 40%. Tell us about this North Warning System. Uh, it, it, this is, uh, you talk about new weapon systems, and certainly there's no one going to disagree with uh, our, our inability to protect ourselves from, uh, from weapons systems 
systems that are being designed literally as we speak. So there's there's a sense of renewal that, that has to happen all the time anyway. But where are we on this North Warning System, Dr. Ferguson? Well, the North Warning System replaced the distance early warning line. The that dew line, that's right, yeah. Uh, so it was built by and large in the 1980s and came to operational life at the end, roughly at the end of the Cold War. It's a series of short and long-range radars, which basically stretch across the northern mainland of the Canadian Arctic. It doesn't go up to the islands north, further north in the archipelago, and then comes down the Labrador coast and provides the early warning, particularly of flights coming over the Arctic, which mm-hmm. is the traditional vector of threats coming from the Soviet Union and today Russia and China as well, but China is sort of behind all this. So that was built in the 1980s. It's operational life, the two radars, the types of radars, and some of them are, a few are manned, most are simply automatic, okay. automated radars. Uh, these radars are simply reaching the end of their life. Uh, they basically will sort of start to die, if we want to put it that way, in 2025. <clears throat> so they need to be replaced. Right. But that's where things get a little more complicated because the radars are not capable. So you can't really replace them one for one mm-hmm. because they're not capable to deal with the long-range threat posed by cruise missiles in hypersonic glide vehicles. So that's why when they start, we everyone talks about North Warning System renewal, which is Sort of, yes, but what we're, what's really being talked about is how do you develop an integrated ground-based, air-based, space-based, and potentially naval-based integrated system of radars that come up far out over, behind, over the horizon in order to deal with this threat problem that Canada and the United States faces. Yeah, Dr. That's Perks, where you start to get the big money. Yeah, do we, do we know? Is there, a, is there a system, a replacement system? Because modernization is exactly your word, and it's the right one. It's not replacing the old stuff with new old stuff. It's replacing the old stuff with new 2021 and beyond stuff. Is such a system ready to go? No, nowhere near. Uh, and that's one of the problems. And again, to be fair to the government, it's one of the reasons the government or national defense is quiet about this, because the pieces aren't in place. There are, there are for example, very large <coughs> what's called backscatter over-the-horizon radars that can look out. But these are very huge radars and extremely expensive radars. The Americans use them. We don't have any of them. Uh, you can use a phased array radars, big radars, that can look out and over. There is space-based systems that can look down, radar sat being one, right. but it's, it's not quite optimized for this type of function. So there's AWACS systems, which the Americans have, we don't have, which you can fly and look down. Yes. Uh, uh, so there, there are pieces of the puzzle all there, but the key thing is the architecture that, and how you integrate it together and then trying to look down the road what new technologies, such as quantum radar, which are coming online, what they will do to make this uh, a more efficient and integrated system. And, of course, once you start to integrate all this, you need all that backfill of massive data movement communication systems. The North has big communications problems. Uh, they don't have the Internet like we do. Right. That's got to all be fixed, and then it all sort of works its way back and sort of a cascading effect cost-wise. 
Sterling Fox with you on this last Sunday morning of March. Here's a quote from our guest. After more than 50 years since NORAD, NORAD rather was founded, its renewal in and of itself is neither problematic nor controversial. However, the issue of ballistic missile defense and to a lesser degree NORAD expansion into the maritime and land dimensions of Continental Defense Corp cooperation raises significant problems for the Canadian government. Neither issue truly can be separated from the renewal of NORAD. This is uh, from a recent article by our guest, uh, Dr. James Ferguson from the D Center for Defense and Security Studies at the University of Manitoba. This is the source of conflict. Ballistic missile defense became uh, a point of uh, controversy between Canada and the United States, Dr. Ferguson, uh, back in the early 2000s, and we have not resolved that conflict yet, have we? No, not yet. And I'm not sure if I put it as a conflict in Canada and the United States. It's almost even better understood as an internal conflict of ourselves with concerns about what this, the United States might or might not do. And this actually has gone back to the 1960s. And this has been going on for, what, 40, 50, 60 years now, 70 years? Okay. Uh, we still haven't come to, got our head around this yet. But what was, the, uh, what was the substance of the dispute? It was over ballistic missile defense, and I immediately thought of Ronald Reagan in Star Wars, but that wasn't what this was about at all, was it? No, no, not the current iteration. Star Wars is part of this, because one of the things that, that the government gets nervous about is that we start they start talking about missile defense. Someone's going to drag out Star Wars. Right, right. And that's the weaponization of space, yeah. which Canadians are against. Uh, there's fears about nuclear arms races and all this stuff that goes back to the, the, the Cold War concerns. But this is, system is entirely different right now. It's designed to deal with, the one we said no to is designed to deal with threats coming out of primarily North Korea. Uh, and it's not designed for a Russia or a China. Oh. Uh, and you would have to put spend a hell of a lot of money to build a big enough system to have it give it any utility uh, in order to deal with those threats. But the government simply gets very nervous about this. And part of the way we, we've been able to work around it in a way, because deeper down is if, we, if this really meant something to the United States and we said no, then the Americans would do these things, which they do anyway sure. by themselves. Of course. And that would kill NORAD. And that would have significant implications for Canada. Uh, but so, for the so time being, you don't need the U.S. doesn't need us to make this work, and that's what's changing. And, and as you make the point, uh, and has been made uh, uh, several times in recent days and weeks, the silence on the part of the Canadian government, which is like years and years in length, the silence continues. Rather than deal with it, they're still just de deflecting, deferring. It's an election year. They've got other priorities on their plates right now. And, th and they seem to be uh, happy or satisfied or comfortable with this, the ongoing silence. Yes, but, but we do. We have to be a little fair. Uh, this was brought up in the first meeting between President Biden and Prime Minister Trudeau. That's right. This is in their statement. So mm -hmm. this is at least at the highest level. There's a recognition of this. Now, how deep that goes and what legs it has, and how much money is attached. Because one of the important things besides silence is the government. If you go back to its defense budget, its commitment in 2017 to long-term funding for defense. There's no money in there for NORAD modernization. None. Where's the money going to come from? Right. 
where what are you going to do with the pandemic and the economic impact there and on you know spending 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 these are all very big issues and what hinges for us and this is a second element of this when you mentioned norad expansion in the maritime sector for mm-hmm. example uh, this raises sovereignty questions yes and we get very nervous even though norad has improved or has been a plus to canadian sovereignty rather than a negative because of the way it's structured uh, there's a fear that this is sort of an unseen American conspiracy to control us. Sure is. is. Nothing's farther from the truth. Mm-hmm. But, uh, there, the that, but you would acknowledge that feeling, and it's that too has been around since the 60s, hasn't it? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Nothing, you know, in many ways in this country, nothing ever changes. So what does need to change, Dr. Ferguson? What what does the government of Canada need to do to get a grip on this? I mean, you talked about North Korea. Well, Kim Jong-un isn't changing his tune anytime soon. He fired off a couple of missiles since Biden's been elected. He's, he's, he's pretty determined to, to stay the course. So what do we have to do? What kind of changes does Canada need to make? Well, I think for the government, the first change you have to make is, if I can put it this way, get the hell out of Ottawa. Mm-hmm. Uh, you don't see defense officials or government officials going out and talking to the public in a variety of different settings. You know, granted the public priorities and thus the government priorities, you barely are in the defense world. But you need to start to inform the public, people not just people like me trying to, but government officials, to make sure that everyone understands these are these are the important issues here, this is what we are working on, uh, this is going to be expensive, so no surprises. Everything goes bad when there's suddenly a big surprise. Uh, you think about, I'll give you a good comparative example. This is classic Canada. Okay. Uh, the Joint Strike Fighter. Canada got involved with the United States and other allies in the consortium to build it in 1998. We upped our ante in 2004 5. In 2008, the defense minister said, uh, we're going to buy 65 new next-generation fighters. Then shortly thereafter, that's embedded in the defense white paper. So here's this issue replacing the F-18 that goes back to 1998. And all seems cruising along. Government hasn't prepared anyone for this. Auditor's general report, it blows up. And the government then backtracks as fast as it can. Mm. And where are we today? We have no replacement That's for the right. F-18 yet. Lo, these many years later, still uh, without the, the the necessary weapons. Yeah. 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 Dr. Ferguson. There, let me add one last thing. Okay. Because we, we talked about warning system, uh, uh, what we talk about all domain awareness for de- defense decision making. This is also issue about forward operating locations, new runways in the Arctic, where we're going to put them. Uh, and how this will then piggyback and help development in that part of the world. Interesting stuff. Dr. James Ferguson joining us from the Center for Defense and Security Studies at the University of Manitoba with a sharp elbow in the ribs to Canadian taxpayers to pay a little more attention to the NORAD file. Thank you for this, Dr. Ferguson. A pleasure to have you aboard today. My pleasure. Anytime.
Our next guest today is the former parliamentary secretary to the Prime Minister of Canada, who left her job, her party, and eventually her role in government to return to the private sector. She is now a lecturer at Queen's University and is the co-author of a piece that is available at theconversation.com this week entitled Make Way, Creating Space for Change in Canadian Politics. A pleasure to welcome Selena Cesar Chavan to our program. Good morning, Selena. Good morning, Sterling. How are you? I'm great, thanks. Tell us about the book, Can You Hear Me Now?, which you wrote after leaving government, the subtitle, How I Found My Voice and Learned to Live with Passion and Purpose. Can you walk us through that? You're not as well known in this corner of Canada as you are on your home turf in Toronto and Whitby in that area, Selena. So give us a chance to get to know you a little bit. As Parliamentary Secretary to the Prime Minister, you eventually quit your job. And a lot of people would go, why on earth would you walk away from the best job a person could ever ask for yeah you know um i was uh, a member of parliament during the 42nd parliament so the last the last parliament that we had this is the 43rd Mm -hmm. and you know i was there for four years from 2015 to 2019 and was parliamentary secretary for the year of 2016 and found you know right at the beginning going in and saying to the prime minister as a black woman you know i don't want to be tokenized in this government i want to make sure did we just lose that uh, cell connection, Ray? Oh, uh, gosh. And that's just, and we were just oh, getting, yeah. there you are. Okay. Selena, don't move around no, now. No, I think I'm still here. Okay, good. God. That was a scary moment. Okay. So <laughs> no, you, no, no. you tell Justin Trudeau, I you read. don't want to be a token black person for visual effect. For visual effect, exactly. And so, you know, I, I'm named as parliamentary secretary. I, I said, you know, I, I ran a research company for 10 years. I have business acumen. I, I managed national epidemiology studies. I could do more than just be there for, you know, my, my gender or my, my race. Right. And after that first year, uh, everybody knows that the prime minister attended, you know, hundreds of international events. I was asked as his parliamentary secretary, of course, parliamentary secretaries run a tag team operation mm-hmm. with their minister to attend meetings and events and cover as much ground as possible. And I attended three events that year that were only Black-focused events. And I had no other meetings. My only job there was to sit and be a woman and, and be Black. And I, I thought it was, it was shockingly embarrassing um, at the end of that, that first year to look back and, and realize that that was the only opportunities that I had to represent the Prime Minister um, as his parliamentary secretary on those events. So I, I resigned from, from that position um, and then was, was transferred over to international development. Yeah, Salila, let me stop you for a second, because you said to the Prime Minister when, mm-hmm. he, gave, when he gave you the job, look, I, I don't want to be a token black woman. I want to be an effective parliamentarian. I want to do a good job for you. And he said, okay, I'll let for you sure. do a good job, and ended up sending you on to assignments that essentially uh, played off of your race and your gender. Uh, and I, so I assume at these meetings, you were the representative of the Prime Minister and had some gravitas simply because of that oh for sure for sure and and i'm I'm not i'm not dispelling i'm not dispelling that at all sure but But when you when i when i look back over the the three events the the one was you know the state dinner at 
in Washington, D.C., which I wasn't invited to the dinner. I was only invited to the South Lawn event hmm. to meet uh, President Obama. I had no other meetings or events for those four days. Then the, uh, the second was the opening of the National African American Museum in Washington, where, again, I was only invited to sit and be present for the, the opening ceremony, and then I left. And the final one was the president, the inauguration of President Akufo Otto in Ghana. And again, you know, so it, it really was, you know, gravitas or not in those events, when you're kind of thinking about the perspective of, am I only here because I'm a black woman? Sure. That, that really, that really is not what I want to be, what I want to be doing. And were there other opportunities to, to represent on other occasions? I'm sure there were. Everybody remembers how, how many international events the prime minister was on. Oh, indeed. The other thing is, I could, I could have attended different meetings, right? So business meetings, uh, research related to, to neurological research. Like, these are the things that I have been known for for the past 10 years. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, for the 10 years before getting into policy. So what I did, did not have an opportunity to do that. What did Mr. Trudeau say when you finally confronted him with your frustration, saying, look, you know, when we first set this deal up, you said I wasn't going to be a token person, and by gosh, I've turned into one, and the only person responsible for that is you. Can we can we redo this deal, or must I leave? You know what? I, I tried to have that conversation with PMO a, a number of times, and it was met with... Uh, no response. So leaving at the end of that year was an option that I chose to take because I just didn't want to continue to be, um, you know, that job comes with $16,000, a $16,000 bonus to do what? To to look the same way I've looked for the last 40 years Mm -hmm. of my life to just be black and a woman. I, I don't think so. How much access did you actually have as a parliamentary secretary? And, and we, we're not over overplaying the role of the parliamentary secretary. Indeed, as you say, it is a tag team thing. But the minister, or in this case, the PM, is to, it, it, the, the power balance is totally in that corner. So how much for access? Sure. And Trudeau is, is notorious for being uh, difficult to get to. He surrounds himself with his, his, his guards, his, his gatekeepers, and, and stays inside that very tight little circle. And it's tough to get to as his parliamentary secretary was he tough to get to so people thought that i had a lot of power as his parliamentary secretary and i actually established a framework with actionable items metrics timelines for deliverables of work that i thought needed to be done i presented that framework to the prime minister in february of 2016 and i asked for a 15 minute meeting per month in order to go over an agenda to make sure that we were in sync, to make sure that the meetings and events that I was attending were sitting in line or at least filling gaps in some of his uh, international and national meetings and events that he was, was, was undertaking so that we, again, would cover more ground. Sure. I got two 15-minute meetings, one in August and one in December. So two in, two in your year, you got two 15-minute meetings. It's not exactly access, particularly with someone uh, carrying the title of parliamentary secretary, for crying out loud. So when you left and yes. you said you were trying... it was not without trying. It wasn't with, for, for, not, for lack of trying. Right. There was, as I said, developed a framework, 
tried to create a job description for a job that really didn't have a description. Again, my background is business. I have an MBA in healthcare management, mm-hmm. and an executive MBA. You know, you want to go forward when you're running a country with a plan that at least has the person that you're working with understanding the the role that you're going to play in terms of being their, you know, their right-hand person, so to speak. So when you uh, finally left the prime minister's uh, file, and were you reassigned, or did they ask you if you wanted to continue being a parliamentary secretary, or did you have any say in the matter? So I did have some say, I think. I don't I don't know. I, I just eventually sent an email that said, here's some shifts that I think we could make, and I asked to not no longer be parliamentary secretary there was once i left in 2016 of De- december 2016 he did not assign another parliamentary secretary to the prime minister until last week mm, when he assigned greg fergus to that role so that role has been vacant for uh, the longest time so it'll be interesting to see what greg fergus does in that role um, that's different from me. I'm going to watch that very closely. But I was reassigned as parliamentary secretary to international development, which is a job that I, I truly love. Sure. And did it work better for you there? Were you able to feel uh, more effective, more uh, more active, more more of a contributor, someone with something to say and some and things that you talked about deliverables? That was one of his uh, Trudeau's yeah. words. Uh, were you able to to do that deliverable thing more effectively in another ministry? Absolutely, absolutely. So working with Mary-Claude Bibeau, you know, we set up, of course, within global affairs, there's a lot of work to do. Sure. So international development falls within global affairs. And this is, you know, Canada's best-kept secret. You know, we have Canadians across the country and around the world that are doing tremendous work. And then when disaster strikes, hurricanes, famine, war, they double down and do more. And so being able to to represent or to be a part of that team where we're making contributions to global uh, issues was a, a lot more uh, impactful, I thought. Mm-hmm. And of course, by that time, the Trudeau administration, we had our hands full with Trump. So the international piece was sort of heightened in terms of international aid because of course at that same time trump was cutting back a lot of his international aid uh to to foreign countries and we were we were stepping up in that role with a, a very feminist policy and so that was more suited in line with my business acumen my research background and my capacity to you know to really use some of my strategic skills in a way that was effective Joined from Whitby, Ontario, by Selena Caesar Chavan, who is a former Prime Prime Minister's uh, Parliamentary Secretary, telling us her story. We're going to get to her article at theconversation.com about change in government in just a second. But, Selena, you've been telling us your story, all of which up until this point has been quite positive. As a a young up-and-coming member of Parliament, you, first of all, are assigned to Parliamentary Secretary to the Prime Minister. That doesn't work out too well. You find yourself on ignore uh, more than anything else. So you get transferred to the Ministry of International Development, and you, with your strong business background, you just take this one uh, and just run with it because this is really up your alley. So what happened at that particular point in your career when you when you do get a, a parliamentary secretary assignment you know you can run with? Uh, what happened? <laughs> so I, I was parliamentary secretary for international development yeah. for about a year, a year, almost two years, to be honest, and uh 
really, as I've said before, really thoroughly enjoyed that job. But, you know, as as I'm developing throughout this, this process, I'm increasingly talking more and more about things that are often stigmatized or we're, we're having these conversations about mental health. So I start talking up about my mental health. I start talking up about equity and racism and the gaslighting starts. And, you know, I, I expect that, you know, gaslighting, there's going to be tension in 2018 talking about race or talking about mental health. The, the fact of the matter is, is that even within a party that prided itself on diversity is its strength and, you know, uh, add women change politics. In 2017, I was excluded from a lot of major conversations that that should have happened within the party. I, I was not invited even uh, to any of those meetings. Mm. And then in 2018, when the gaslighting started, um, I I wasn't even protected by by the party in any way shape or form there was no there was no outreach there was no you know consideration of is she okay in this in these moments and i just thought at the end of 2018 forget it i don't i'm i'm gonna leave well you know it it speaks to the and and our our system the canadian system of government within the parliamentary system and there are many parliamentary systems around the world selena you no doubt have found particularly as a member of parliament that our obsession with party loyalty as as the the main uh, characteristic to become a member of parliament our our fanatical uh, obsession with party loyalty is unique to canada other parliamentary systems include and enjoy and celebrate their mavericks for example in canada there's no right. space room or time for anyone who steps out of line so you started giving some independent interviews and expressing your thoughts on uh, issues of the day uh, that were not approved right. through the proper party channels and so for your efforts the party basically sh- turned off the connection well, exactly. And, you know, the things that I were talking about, remember, Sterling, in 2015, when the Liberals were campaigning, they were campaigning as bold, transformative, government sure. done differently, sunny ways, open, transparent, add women, change politics, diversity is our strength. Mm-hmm. So when I'm talking about equity and justice and mental health and race, I'm thinking like I'm in line with what they're talking about. It's just that I'm using different language. I'm like actually talking from my lived experience as a a woman, as a black person in Canada. I'm saying that we need to have this these equitable outcomes, and I'm further and further marginalized. And you know, by by the time 2019 came around, and uh, of course, Van, Vancouverites were or uh, people in BC will know about uh, the scandal with with Jody Wilson. Sure, of course, yeah. By the time that came around. I was over it. I was done. Aha. Uh-huh. And then so you left or you you left the caucus, you sat as an independent until your term expired and you announced uh, prior to that you would not seek re-election. So out of all of this uh, comes a book called Can You Hear Me Now? How I Found My Voice yeah. and Learned to Live with Passion and Purpose. How long did, how long a gap was there from the time you left Ottawa and your job as an MP until the release of that book? It was about it was about a year. Okay. It was about a year, and you know the, the the finding my voice and passion. I speak to it in in the conversation piece. It is about the culture of of government, about the fact that you cannot do anything without 
without being completely loyal and towing the party line. Right. And, you know, the situation with Jody Wilson-Raybould, you know, we'd come out of a situation where we were talking about Me Too, hashtag Believe Women, Mm -hmm. and all of my colleagues were hashtagging Believe Women, Believe Women when they're harassed, they're bullied. And they, I thought it interesting that they could believe believe women when it was convenient and leave Jody when it was not. And that was my decision there to sit as an independent. I couldn't align my principles um, or couldn't put my, my party above my principles. And so I sat as an independent at that point. Interesting stuff. Selena, only a, a minute or so left. As we look ahead to a likely election sometime in 2021, do you think Trudeau has, he's got Ontario and Quebec, and frankly, to run this country, that's all you need. Is he going to get a majority next time? I really hope not. To be honest, he had a majority and in the 42nd Parliament. He did, he did what, what, what was politically expedient to ensure that he was re-elected. He did not do, in my opinion, the things that Canadians really needed to create equity in this country, to actually build our economy and do, do what was right by Canadians in, in a lot of cases. And, you know, I, I, I hope it's another minority or there's a leadership change. Interesting stuff. I commend a couple of websites to my listeners this morning, Selena. One, theconversation.com, which we routinely uh, ch- commend to our listeners, given the fact that there are so many wonderful articles. This one is Make Way, Creating Space for Change in Canadian Politics by our guest, Selena Caesar Chavan. And you can find out more about her online on her website, which is Selena CC. That's very clever. Selena CC.ca. Selena, thanks very much for this we appreciate the opportunity to speak to you and as we dig into this election season a little deeper let's do this again for sure sterling thank you to you and your listeners as well thank you a pleasure to welcome our next guest back to the program he is the president and ceo of the automotive retailers association of british columbia adrian scoville is with us from langley adrian good morning and welcome back Good morning, Sterling, and thanks for having me back. Uh, It's good to have you with us. And I should let our listeners know right now, at the beginning of the conversation, our phone lines are wide open for your calls or questions, because this is something we're going to talk about here that, Adrian, I I still think a lot, I still think the majority of people are unaware of. And it's your campaign entitled Your Car, Your Data, Your Choice. And you've got a petition going and all sorts of things. So uh, the lines are open, friends, 604-280-9898 if you want to jump in. So, Adrian, for the benefit of those who have not heard you on this program before, tell us a little bit about the campaign and and why it is so important that we know about this, particularly if we own a new-ish vehicle. Well, it's critically important, Sterling, as as you bring up, and uh, you and I have chatted a little bit about it. Um, The the campaign, by the way, is actually North American-wide. It originated from down in the States, uh, where they're Actually, the canary in the coal mine here is uh, in Massachusetts, where there was some legislation um, approved or, or a, a, um, a, a vote uh, to the public, rather. The question was passed and, um, in order to get access to vehicle data information. Um, and that is being fought very heavily by the uh, vehicle manufacturers. Um, so they're, they're really trying to limit what information is available from your your via from your vehicle so essentially what is happening 
Today, you can take your vehicle to any aftermarket independent mechanic, your sure. favorite guy down the street, That's the right. guy you've known and serviced your vehicle. The one person no you probably trust to do the job that needs to be done, and he's not going to soak you an arm and a leg in the process. No, and he's going to be able to find some, some creative solutions, which we can sort of chat about in a little bit, I guess. Sure. The, um, the thing with the, the data in your car, the, the way it is right now, by the way, there is an agreement in place, a voluntary agreement with the manufacturers to give reasonable access to the data in order for shops to fix your vehicle. Yep. So you can get all but a handful of very exotic cars right now. You can take them to any licensed um, service place. I would you know, really accentuate the license people who know what they're doing. Of course. And have them access the data and get your vehicle uh, sorted. So that person, um, that independent mechanical contractor, has spent a fair bit of money, typically, Adrian, in order to gather together the software required to have in their shop so that any vehicle that can come in, they can tap into their computer, that vehicle's computer system, and, and have the connection they need to make whatever repairs are necessary. That, that, that contractor, that mechanic, has spent some serious dough uh, getting that software on board, right? An enormous amount. Um, You know, just in the tools, the average mechanic has about $30,000 worth of personal tools. Sure. Um, Beyond that, there's the the equipment you'd speak of. So the the kind of equipment that you're speaking of that we're quite commonly seeing in in place now since probably the mid-80s. Right. um, That's more... What it does, the, the analogy would really be it's closer to a thermometer telling me, well, you've got a temperature, but it doesn't tell me what's wrong. It just says there is something wrong and it's over here. Something looks hotter than it should be. Okay. But it's up to a skilled mechanic to figure out why. And there's where they need further information. So there's a lot of research that goes into how to, to properly repair a vehicle today. Um, the, what is coming beyond that the thing called telematics, where your car basically can speak to the original manufacturer forever and ever. Ah. It, it can transfer a tremendous amount of data and information. Now, the data and information we're looking to have available is only related to the mechanics and the servicing and the security features of that vehicle. We don't want any engineering data or, right. or, or related material. Just we need to be able to make sure that that industry can properly service your vehicle. And it is your vehicle. So when you buy it, surely the data it collects belongs to you. No kidding. No, by, the, by the way, not. Adrian, is this, uh, this whole business about the original manufacturer owning all the data generated by the car, is this effective in this model year, last year's model year, or next year's model year, or is it already in place? It's trickling into place now, and the canary in the coal mine, as I, as I mentioned, is we're seeing what's happening down in uh, Massachusetts. Uh, give us an indication of the reactions uh, of industry of the uh, manufacturers. The the biggest example right now, and it, they're sort of blazing the trail in many areas, is Tesla. Um, Tesla, for instance, will not really will not even sell you a part for the vehicle. You have to use one of its authorized dealers period ah. you, you, so the a, a glass installation company for instance couldn't even get the windshield for you so if it, it they are they're locking that out 
Now, the in Massachusetts, part of the legislation there that, that's in place says that they need to share such information as they would to a member of their dealer network. That's what it says. But Tesla doesn't have a dealer network. Right. It's all privately owned. So they found a loophole. Ah, so in Massachusetts, though, Adrian, they, they passed a law that says these owners, instead of being able to hoard all of this data that developed and generated by the car, they have to now share that information with the owner of the car, the person who one would think is obviously entitled to it on account of the fact that they parted with a serious amount of cash to get the car in the first place. Well, I would say yes and no. So there, there already was the, the legislation I'm referring to has been in place and is here under a voluntary agreement. So, but they, they, with the upcoming um, telematics and the more advanced restrictions that are, we're seeing coming into place, they had a referendum. And as I say, 75% odd of the, the voters there said, yes, that's our data. We sure. should do whatever we want. With that's it. right. So they would, they, it was the idea of passing the legislation. So now it's caught up in course in the legal system um, and it's being fought. And of course, the first people out of the block seem to be Tesla and very aggressive in fighting it. So the manuf- um, what's to be gained by the manufacturers in fighting this, except, I suppose, the, uh, the circle the wagons around their own dealerships and their own mechanics only and excluding everyone else from the process and possibility of repairing your vehicle? Well, that, that is the, you're summarizing, I, I think, from the uh, from industry standpoint, from the consumer standpoint, that's exactly what it is. However, there's way more to it than that. Okay. Um, telematics is far more sophisticated than simply what's going on with my car um, in, and fixing it. Your car quite literally knows how much you weigh. Um, part of the airbag system and emergency systems is a sensor in the seat that says, do I have a child or do I have an adult? Uh-huh. Um, it knows where you're driving, how you're driving, when you apply your brakes. It knows all of that stuff. Um, so it, it knows an enormous amount about you. Um, it has the possibility to to videotape where you're going, and it's got the possibility of listening to what you're saying if sure. it wanted to. I'm not. I'm not being an alarmist. I'm mm-hmm. not saying, oh my gosh, you know, uh, it, you know, it's, uh, they're not implanting a microchip in you here. Um, but they sure are putting uh, many, many microchips in their vehicles for very and for a variety of reasons. I mean, in fact, they've actually had to slow down some automobile production lines. You know this uh, in yes. recent weeks because of a shortage of chips. In fact, there yes. are so many chips in cars these days they can't keep up. And Ford and General Motors have both had to slow down production due to the shortage of chips. So, with all these chips in mind, Adrian, uh, and the information that they're gathering and storing and sending back to the car's original manufacturer. Manufacturer, that leaves out the possibility of you knowing what's going on, your mechanic, your chosen trusted mechanic of knowing what's going on. And I would imagine insurance companies are going to get a little bent out of shape if they're required to, in the wake of repairs, for example, to send the, your vehicle to the dealer approved mechanic, which typically costs a lot more than your guy does. Well, exactly. You, you sum it up perfectly. Um, the not only is it personal data that we feel belongs to you, there is no opt-out option. It's not like when you go to buy the car, they say, would you like to opt in and out of this portion of the car or your vehicle? Is it okay if we transmit data back and forth? Right. You have no choice. Buy the car, they've got it. Not only that, but they can do anything they want with it. Um, So from an insurance standpoint, 
Um, you, you talk about the financial side. Yes. So I'll give it, again, I don't want to pick on Tesla, but they are, they're blazing a trail in many areas. Right. Um, and they will only allow service through one of their networks because you can't buy parts outside of that network. Right. So the furthest one out that we know of right now, there, there's one on the island, but this, the furthest out, say, from the city is in Kelowna. So if you own a Tesla or you decide, hey, I'm going to take a long drive somewhere and take a rock through the windshield or, or get some damage to the vehicle, it has to be towed at least there. So if it's under ICBC, they're going to have to pay for that. If it isn't and it's, it's a private deal, you're going to have to pay for that. Mm-hmm. So these are concerns, and, and we have spoken to ICBC um, who are, are outstanding when it comes to, uh, you know, getting understandings of what's happening in the future, etc. Um, and we've, we have spoken to them about this issue. Um, they are concerned about it. It may be you will see um, that if you own one outside of those areas, that there will be a surcharge on that particular kind of vehicle. Otherwise, and- it's going to drive rates up for everybody. Yeah. Uh, so this is a concern. Adrian Scoble is the president and CEO of CEO rather of the Automotive Retailers Association. They have a campaign underway entitled Your Car, Your Data, Your Choice, and they invite you to join the fight to give vehicle owners access to and control of the data generated from, oh yeah, their vehicles. They have a petition, and there's an American petition correspondingly. Adrian, uh, we did open the phone lines, and uh, Scott's on the line to join the conversation, so let's include him going forward scott good morning good morning adrian have you guys uh, considered launching a complaint with the competition bureau with the combines act of canada i mean this this is this is suppression of competition and you know they there's a lot of businesses that have been gone after for a lot less than this this is a huge conspiracy to suppress competition interesting question scott thank you adrian what do you think it, it, well, yes, it, it is a possibility if we get to that point. What we're looking to do is get ahead of it um, so that we don't, we don't need that. Um, and government is listening. Um, so there was a bill called uh, C-11, um, which is the bill being uh, looked at by government now, federal government now, um, to, to change legislation to legally require the, the original equipment manufacturers to give access to this information. Um, so we we have a voluntary agreement in place right now. It's referred to as CASIS, um, which our association was a big part in developing. Mm-hmm. Um, but what is happening is the the OEs are sort of restricting it and going by the exact word of it. And we're seeing sort of, as I, I keep saying, the canary in the coal mine here of what's going to happen. So there was also um, legislation coming into uh, being proposed. So we're looking to the manufacturers saying, look, we'd really rather serve, you know, I would say put a Canadian type solution to this as in let's just sit down and be friends and work this out. Um, there's also legislation being looked at. Um, if neither of those things do get through and, and we see, you know, sort of this anti-competitive uh, nature, right. we do have a very good competitions act in Canada. So I dare say that, you know, should it go down that road, um, we will see that. So good point. Yes, we, we totally agree with you. We'd like to find, as I say, sort of a Canadian attitude solution. That's a great question, though, Scott. And, and of course, that seems to be from, from the way you responded, a sort of an ultimate uh, strategy, given the fact that it gets pretty expensive pretty fast. But nonetheless, it remains a tool in the, in the box, doesn't it? It remains a tool in the box. And, uh, you know, expense aside, uh, 
we, we will make absolutely certain that uh, the public has access um, to its own information and, uh, and where it goes and how it's shared. Because there's also questions, of course, of privacy here. Sure, yeah. Um, so at, at the, you're talking about legislation at the federal level uh, by the government of Canada. Is there anything individual provincial governments could do? Can Victoria influence this process at all on a local British Columbia level? Or is this something, given the fact that it's Ford and General Motors and Fiat Chrysler Canada, it needs federal attention? Well, I think it requires federal attention, as in it affects all Canadians. Um, so it is something I think that requires an evenness across the country. So let's just say you had such legislation here in BC. Well, that's great until you drive into Alberta sure. uh, or you, you happen to take your vehicle somewhere else. Then you could find yourself in a place where you can't do that. And ironically, that is that is happening in, in a limited format. But there are certain vehicles that are that are deemed Canadian only. And with regard to the security information in your car, Mm -hmm. a Canadian service provider currently may be able to service an American coming here in a particular vehicle, but could not service a Canadian here in a particular kind of vehicle because the people controlling the access are in the U.S. Really? So, yeah, it's we as a sovereign country, we literally don't have control over a lot of the security data um, and how to to, uh, use that. So I'll make it very brief, but your security, modern security system in a car is connected to all kinds of components. So let's just say it's connected to your transmission. It says, oh, look, someone's stealing me. I'll stop the transmission working. Well, when a mechanic changes the transmission or does something to it, the computer says, "Uh uh-oh, someone's stealing the car and shuts off that, that particular component. So they could fix it, put it back in, get a new one, put it in, but the car will not work. So they need access to that security information. Yeah. Um, that's just one example of, of sort of some of the little crazy loopholes that are in the system right now. So and we need to fix that. So the, and the and the opposition, the the big manufacturers have dug in their heels and decided no, they want to be the exclusive owners of this uh, information that every car vehicle owner has legitimately paid for out of his or her pocket. Uh, nonetheless, uh, the manufacturer of said vehicle has decided in advance that any information that your car generates will be their exclusive property. So consumers have a a role to play here. Uh, And I guess the petition is the most obvious consumer route. Yes. Yes, that's exactly it. I I, I will go sort of put it a little finer point. It it is getting more and more restrictive. There are certain manufacturers who are absolutely dug in. They won't even sell apart. Right. Um, There are other manufacturers who are working to uh, working with the current cases agreement and and supplying information, um, that however, the, sort of the writing's on the wall mm-hmm. that, that th- these things are coming and they'll be restrictive, um, and not only restricted, but you will, as a consumer, have no choice but to send the information. It, it's going back to them, um, so. That is a definitely a concern, well, um, not only the privacy issue, but the fact that, yeah, you bought the car. Since when did you sign away all your rights to the information from that car? Particularly, again, you know, I, I hate to keep him back. Follow the money is one of my mantras. And oh, if yeah. it comes back to the tickets attached to the price of these cars, even a little fuel-efficient cars cost twenty-five or thirty grand. And, I mean, you at very least ought to be able to have all the information that you've paid for. So, Adrian, where does one go to sign on to the petition about your car your data, your choice. 
go to ara.bc.ca. Okay. That's our main site. And right at the top of the page, um, there'll be a little sliding graphic. Um, and it'll, you'll see it. It'll say to click here to, to read more about and sign the petition. And, uh, yeah, we're up just over 22,000 people now, I see, this morning um, have already signed the petition. And it's climbing. Good. Um, so very, very good to see that, that people are reacting. Uh, if you own a car, you need to get on and click. All right. Adrian Scoble, for president of the Automotive Retailers Association. The website again, friends, ara.bc.ca. Adrian, thanks for this. Great to have you back on the show. It's one of the more worthwhile causes worth fighting for these days. We'll check in with you in a little bit and see how things are going. Okay, thank you. Our next guest is an educator whose views on BC's public education system are not particularly flattering. He calls it substandard and out of date and in need of a complete overhaul. He's a voice for change in Vancouver's education system. He is also the founder and director of Pear Tree Elementary in Quetzalano. A pleasure to welcome Paul Romani to the program. Mr. Romani, Paul, good morning and welcome. Good morning. Thanks for having me on the show. Uh, it's good to have you with us, Paul. Talk to us a little bit about your your biggest beef with the current Vanco- or the current BC uh, education system, which uh, the uh, as I understand it, you 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 refer to come rather consistently as being substandard and out of date. Yeah. So um, when we started Patrick Elementary a number of years ago, uh, we had a different vision for how education should be. And coincidentally, the Ministry of Education revised the BC curriculum and have recently changed the provincial exams to reflect a much more modern way of thinking about education. And we're fully in alignment with what the ministry is doing. But the problem is that schools are still teaching in a very traditional subject-based approach with textbooks and things are based on tests and there's no real-life connection to any of the learning. And so not only are kids not being prepared for these provincial exams, but they're really not being prepared for life in general. They're being set up for failure, really, because uh, life has promised you that if you do well in school, you'll do well in life, but life doesn't work that way. And I think the majority of employers would acknowledge that people leaving both school and university have no real life skills to be able to apply anything they've learned. It's all theoretical knowledge and they have to do all the teaching when they get into the workplace. And this applies in in society in general that people don't have the skills that they need to to survive in in the real life and competitive city like Vancouver. So that's why we started Petri Elementary because we have a completely different method of education and it does prepare kids not just for tests but also for real life. So if you're if you're and it's quite true and we've heard from innumerable educators and employers over the last uh, few years bemoaning the fact that most of their new hires are completely unskilled and uneducated in the ways of the world. Uh, They Mm -hmm. may they may have lots of theories about this, that and the other thing. But in terms of real life, boots on the ground, woefully unprepared is what a lot of employers are telling us. So all of those changes that are, are obvious at the university level. Uh, which are causing these young people to enter the workforce out of university with some kind of scroll, convinced that they know something, uh, only to be greatly disappointed by their uh, first employer who tells them, uh, you don't know much at all. You, you, that scroll is permission to enter the game. So what uh, all of the changes that you're talking about that affect those individuals with that scroll fresh out of university, the changes that you're suggesting, Paul, really must begin at the other end, at the intake end, when they're little. Talk to us about what what you would see as being changed at the kindergarten and the the little kid end. 
Yeah, I completely agree. And that's exactly the point is that some people think that a lot of these skills need to be taught in high school. And I completely disagree with that. It does need to start in kindergarten. So in terms of real life skills that we're teaching at Pear Tree Elementary, uh, we teach collaboration between students. And even with that, it's not something you inherently are good at. You, you have to be taught how to work with other people, how to collaborate, how to negotiate, how to persuade people, how to concede when you're wrong and, and not always want to get your way. Um, there's so many skills when it comes to just communication in general, developing a sense of, uh, sense of identity and self-esteem and being able to stand out from the crowd and market yourself, um, being able to apply knowledge to real life. Um, again, if you just learn things for the sake of it, you're not learning how to apply that knowledge. And like I say, the, the Ministry of Education recognizes this. This is why the, not just the curriculum, but the provincial exams have been completely overhauled. So they're now interdisciplinary where subjects are taught together so that you have to know how to apply that knowledge, whether it's math or whether it's reading or writing, but you have to be able to apply that to real life situations. Uh, whether it's like a business contract or, um, you know, so, something that's real life. Maybe it's just something simple like cooking, for example, or, or paying your rent. And, uh-huh. and, and all, these, all these different skills. But we teach that at a kindergarten level. And it's a, it's a lot more challenging to learn this way. But it's also a lot more fun as well. And that's the thing, because kids understand that they're learning for a reason. Yeah, let's. Uh, to, to, I want to just unpack that a little bit. First of all, when did the overhaul that you're referring to by the BC Ministry of Education occur? It sounds quite recent. Yeah, it's, it's been a, couple, a few years now. It's like a couple of years since the new provincial exams took place. Um, but the thing is, they, they recognize that schools are going to be slow to change to, to adapt to this. If you have an interdisciplinary exam, teachers are looking at each other in different departments going, well, who's teaching this? Because I teach math. But I don't teach math in context, when it, in a science context or in a social context. So is the social studies teacher teaching this? And so they're all looking at each other trying to figure this out. And this applies to independent schools as well. They're just so stuck in that mindset that they only teach a subject. And as a result of that, these kids are just being woefully ill-prepared for these exams. And it's extremely stressful, even for kids who are in like, you know, advanced placement courses. They, they never had to apply math to anything in real life. Whereas in our school, it's the complete opposite. It's like, you know, you've got a theme about transportation and kids are learning about the cost of, you know, bus tickets, sure. the number of the number of passengers going on that bus, how long it takes to get from A to B, uh, working with a budget, figuring out whether it's cheaper to go by bus or to maybe take a taxi, if you can all get in the taxi together. And, and they're comparing costs and all these math skills that come into it, but it's all been in the context of a real-life situation that, that they can then apply uh, in their daily lives. Interesting stuff. So then uh, the, the uh, why is it that the teachers seem to be so dug in in their opposition to provincial exams? Um, I, I think it's not it's not indivi- uh, it's not like teachers as a whole. Uh, I'm not having a you know, I'm not attacking all teachers. I'm just saying that there are some teachers who are generally the teachers who have been there for the longest who are very, very resistant to change. Uh, we refer to this as uh, these people as educational stakeholders, of which I'm one of those. Uh, but educational stakeholders can put their foot down and say, I am not changing what I'm doing. And in the case of public schools, they have a union to back them up on right, that. Right, right. Okay, so it's, and speaking through the union is is what I'm referring to, because as a union position, it seems to be opposed to these, uh, these uh, testing pretty much of, of any description. 
Exactly, yeah. And, and on the one hand, they try to pitch this argument to parents as it being in the interest of the child, but it's not in the slightest in the interest of the child. It's completely in their own interest. And, it, you know, kids have to be prepared for these tests. It's a, it's a real-life expectation. And to not change is, well, ludicrous in my opinion. It's like going into the workplace and, re- and refusing to update your skills. You're just going to make yourself unemployed. So why would you have that mentality when it comes to education? But it's interesting because, you know, I'm, I'm just using another analogy of another type of test. Uh, for example, a lot of driving schools in British Columbia can be quite accurately accused, Paul, of not teaching people how to drive, but rather teaching people how to pass the driving test so mm-hmm. that you can you can parallel park, you can do this that, and the other thing. But and that's all they learn, just enough to get a license. But in terms of learning the skills of being a good driver, uh, they don't have time or money for that all they want to do is pass the test so mm-hmm. uh in in the education industry that one way of approaching tests is teach the tests so your kids will pass and everybody looks good that and also the mentality that they say it's not my problem they, they say i i'm not here to teach them to apply their knowledge so they can figure that, that out for themselves but the thing is unless you've been taught to do that you don't know how to do it and so you, you see a lot of people leaving school, like I said before, with all this theoretical knowledge. They can, they can pass tests, but you ask them to apply even the most simple math to the most simple context, they can't do it. Uh, it it's, the, it's the craziest thing to actually see in action. I've seen it myself all the time. And they have no clue where to start. They're looking for you to provide them with a formula. And you say, well, there isn't a formula on paper. You need to figure out what, what it is you need to calculate. Mm-hmm. And they, they simply can't do it. And that's exactly what the provincial exams are designed to do now, to test whether or not someone can figure out what the formula is uh, in, in the case of the, uh, you know, the math test. Um, and a lot of kids are really struggling with this because they've never had to think this way before. They, it does have to be taught from a very, very early age, which is why we teach it from kindergarten. Um, because, you know, it's, once it becomes... If you've never experienced something different, if you never learned in a different way before, you don't know any different. So if you learn in the way that we teach, through themes and in an interdisciplinary way, you don't know any different. You just consciously think that way all the time. Sure. It, it, comes, it comes naturally to you to apply everything that you're learning to the world around you. Paul Romani is with us. Mr. Romani is the founder and director of Pear Tree Elementary School, a voice for change in the BC education system. Paul, you should know that on this program about, oh, I guess about a month ago now, we had an accountant from North Vancouver named Doug Allen uh, join us on the program to talk about his new book, uh, which uh, he wrote. It's called A Fighting Chance, The High School Finance Education Everyone Deserves. Doug is not a teacher. He's an accountant, but he is a product of the BC education system. And I said, so why'd you write this book, Doug? And he said, because nobody else has. And boy, do we ever need it. I never learned anything in this book in school. And it's just rudimentary stuff. Uh, You know, checkbook balancing, all of the basics, Paul. How do you approach that, even with little kids? Um, Well, if I could, I'd like to give an example of a theme that we have. And it's not necessarily about accounting, but um, uh, one of the themes we have is about oil. And it includes a lot of math in there, so this will definitely address that topic. Okay. But, um, you know, the first thing that kids learn is that things like 
crude oil, for example, is not the same as cooking oil, which uh, is quite surprising to a lot of kids because they, they universally use the word oil. Um, they learn about fractional distillation. Mm-hmm. So they learn about how you can make different types of fuels from oil. Again, they're, not, they're unaware of this. They're unaware of the fact that everything around us is pretty much made of oil as well, including plastics, which is an, another theme that we have at Pear Tree. But then they start working out the proportions of how oil is used in different industries. So they start using percentages and fractions, but in the context of oil and how it's distilled into different types of products. And using math to do that means that they're learning how to do that in context. At the same time, they learn where oil comes from, which countries. And so, uh, and environmental impacts as well as the First Nations people. Uh, and then within that, they also do novel studies as well connected to oil. So in all contexts, they're using math, social studies, science, literacy, all in the context of oil, which is a very relevant topic, not just for the world, but for Canada, because you have, we have an oil industry here. So um, it's, it's perfectly relevant to them. It makes them very aware of the oil industry, but it also makes us aware that oil, for example, is not this black and white thing that we can just say we can live without it. But at the same time, we don't necessarily love it either because it has so many negative effects on our lives so it really empowers kids not only to understand the world around them but in but actually how to use math in this context of analyzing data about this or analyzing the, the, the proportion of a population or whatever it is that they're using math for and like this accountant says he's like yeah you're actually having to use it in this case but ordinarily you would just be studying multiplication and division and Mm -hmm. algebra with no purpose in this case this is this is quite highbrow stuff because uh, these are not easy numbers that these kids are working with, even though they're in grade six, seven. These are quite sophisticated numbers, but at the same time, the math is still the math that you would learn in grade six, seven. It's still you know multiplication, sure. fractions, percentages. It's the same thing, but it's done in context, so it's much more challenging. Paul, what do you mean between uh, what do you mean by theme-based education methods as compared to traditional methods? Yeah, so I just gave you an example of one theme that we have, and students in our school will learn multiple themes at any one time. So oil is just one example of that. Um, And so when we teach through themes in our school, it means we do not have separate school subjects. You you will not have a math class or a, a, a social studies class. These subjects are blended together around themes, which means, yes, you're studying reading and writing and all the all the traditional subjects, but you do it through the lens of a theme, which means that you'll be doing language arts, but you'll be doing it both in like transportation, but you'll also do it in a theme about insects. Uh, you'll, you'll still be doing reading, but in the context of insects or in the context of oil. Uh, and so as a result, you're, you're reading real books rather than textbooks. Right. We don't have any textbooks in our school. We use real books and all the materials that are provided to our students are custom made by our teachers for that theme based on those students. So that means that everything that the students are learning is in context at all times. We, you can refer to this as interdisciplinary, but it's like it's to the point where there are no subjects. And yet at the same time, of course, you, you uh, meet all the curriculum requirements set down by the ministry. Well, that's the thing is that, yeah, I mean, if you look at the BC curriculum, and I give the example of oil, the, 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 in the curriculum it says you have to teach about natural resources. Um, and so this is one example of that, uh, teaching about oil. You have to teach about environmental impacts or, or cause and effect. 
And again, this is cause and effect right here. If you decide to start using oil for something, it has an effect. Sure. So we, we cover all the requirements uh, and and then some because we go beyond the visa curriculum. But the, the fact is, because these skills are embedded into multiple themes, it means students are constantly using these skills again and again and again. Whereas in a traditional school environment where you have subjects, you would study that one skill in one grade in one term, and that is it. You would never revisit that skill ever again, mm-hmm. which is why when we teach students who come to us for after-school classes for SSAT exams to get into private high schools, they've studied fractions in like grade four, they studied percentages in grade six, and then when you when you test them on this or ask them to apply it, they say, well, I don't remember this because I haven't studied it since grade four. Oh, and my. It's like, well, how can you not remember it? And the fact is they, they never understood it to begin with because you can't learn something in one term. Mm-hmm. It, it's like anything. You constantly need to learn it over time to, to allow your, your brain to absorb that information and to digest it. So in our case, when, when we introduce a skill into our class, like, for example, yeah, like multiplication, it's something these students would use constantly throughout their entire education thereafter. And if we didn't do that, we would ask ourselves, well, why are we bothering to teach this in the first place if it's not something that students need to use constantly? And of course, they need to use it constantly because when you're doing data analysis, you need to constantly work with numbers, proportions and this kind of thing. And so as a result of that, the students become so uh, sophisticated in their math skills because they're having to use them in multiple contexts. And the ironic thing is when we introduce a new theme that applies the same skill, Initially, the students are like, I don't know how to do this. And it's like, yeah, exactly. That, that's the whole reason why you're having to learn this again and again and again. Incentivizing, huh? Yeah, exactly. Lots and, of that. But, Paul, but there's I, a, lot of, a lot of relearning that goes on as well. Indeed. Paul, I have to leave it there. I'm fresh out of time, and I'm also very grateful for yours on a Sunday morning. A very interesting take on education and the approach to it that we take or could take in British Columbia. Thanks for this. And by the way, friends, the website is peartree.school. Thanks, Paul. Thank you. The B.C. provincial government has announced $16 million in funding for B.C. arts and culture organizations, but those hoping for a chance to offer live performances again shouldn't hold their breath. The new money announced last Monday includes $14 million in one-time supplements to 588 arts and culture groups around the province, plus another $2 million to help 47 organizations improve their existing spaces. One arts organization we are particularly fond of here is uh, Metro Theater in Vancouver. Catherine Morrison back with us from Metro Theater. Catherine is a director at large here to talk about that funding announcement. Catherine, good morning and welcome back. Good morning, Sterling. How are you? I'm great, thank you. Uh, you people um, barely barely keeping up your heads above water. <laughs> I know it's been a tough year. My gosh, we've, we've had an opportunity over the last year to speak a couple of times and all those cancelled performances and all the yes. rest of it, Catherine. It's been a rough ride. So did you, are you going to be in a position to receive any of this lolly the province announced to be available last week? I honestly can't answer that, Sterling. Uh, some grants were, were uh, we can apply for and others we can can't um, it it and sometimes we're turned down and we honestly don't know why. Okay, it's um, it it. Uh, I really you'd have to speak to somebody more in the finances. I really don't know, but um, it has been a tough year. And I think that when we were closed down 
in late November. We still had a couple of performances left of, of the show we were at that time doing. That was a real blow because we had our big Christmas show about to open a week later. Mm-hmm. And that one had been specifically designed with COVID protocols in mind. We had built the set so that the actors could be socially distanced from each other. The actors entered with masks on. They never interacted directly. Um, the, 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 the script itself was written with COVID protocols in mind. So we had really gone to town on everything. And of course, we had a lot of expenses. We had to pay for the set, the director, the royalties, sure. a professional actor playing Scrooge, etc., and all that money um, basically down the drain. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Now, the uh, the announcement of uh, the of some funding would be welcome, of course, by any group. But of Catherine, course. the 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 uh, the corollary attached to it by the premier, no less, uh, with respect to live in performances being still quite some distance off. Uh, I imagine that went over like the proverbial lead balloon, particular, <laughs> particularly in view of the of the protocols that have been observed. Um, our, our movie guy Rick Forchuk has only been to two movies in the past year and he said both times he was in a theater he'd never felt safer because he knew the effort that the people who ran the theater and capacity right. capacity only 25% of the house nonetheless well, the, we, we have less than 25% of the house. We're only allowed 50 people. 50 people, period. And, and our, th- our theater holds 310. You cannot believe how socially distanced <laughs> the audience was for Five Alarm and for Charlie's Aunt. Oh, I'm sure. Um, you know, you could shoot off a cannon. And it really, this is the thing is, it, I've been much closer to people when I've been in small coffee shops and restaurants than I ever was in Metro Theater. We had um, very strict protocols, no intermission with the place, so mm-hmm. there was no, no congestion. No schmoozing at the bar. No, 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 the bar was closed. Yeah. We had the bar, the, our, the irony is, <laughs> the irony is, we've actually had, um, uh, the Vancouver Coastal Health and City of Vancouver have asked us um, for money for our, our business and liquor license, and we haven't had our theater bar open for the public since a year ago, February. I believe you. You know, and so the, this is it. We had very strict protocols. It was very safe, and uh, we we felt that we were really um, adhering to everything we could possibly do sure. to keep the public safe and our actors, of course, as well. We had a conversation with Donna Spencer from the Fire Hall Theater a couple of weeks ago, and Donna was going to go uh, for a face to face with uh, yes. the minister, Mr. Uh, minister Mark, responsible for arts, tourism, and culture, and either Dr. Bonnie Henry or her deputy. Uh, to mm-hmm. discuss the reality of these uh, these uh, lack of people in theatrical presentations and so on. Has that meeting taken place? Do you know? I don't believe so. I okay. think it's on March the 30th is when Donna is meeting. And we're so that's really, Tuesday um, then. Great. No pressure on Donna, but we're really hoping that she can that she can pump for us and, and, um, and put our case because we do feel to a degree that we're the child that's been forgotten in, in, all, in everything Thing. And our expenses remain. I mean, at Metro, we've got two buildings. We have our theater, but we also have uh, this, the scene shop. We have hydro, internet, insurance, security system, all kinds of things that we have to keep paying sure. 
for, for both those buildings. And most theater companies probably have expenses and have continued to have expenses over this last year and a bit. Yeah. Have you, uh, some theater companies, uh, not all, but some are, uh, uh, enjoy some corporate sponsorship and support from uh, other groups in the community. Are you the beneficiary of any of that well, activity? Basically, the only sponsor we have is Cloverdale Paint, and they have been generous. Uh, we're actually going to be repainting the front doors and our lobby, stairway up to the lounge, etc., um, over the next couple of months, and they have generously um, sponsored the paint for that. Oh, good. But that is the only sponsor that we have, mm. and believe me, if you've got any people out there Sterling, any of you people listening that would like to sponsor Metro Theatre, we would be very happy to talk to you. I'm sure you would. And how's the theatre company doing, Catherine? Almost out of time here, but you know, the, those performers, uh, you know, uh, there ain't no, there ain't no <laughs> audience, the, there ain't oh, no show. Sterling, they miss the audience so much. No I mean, kidding. there is nothing like, for actors, it, as a director, there's nothing like sitting in the theater with a large audience laughing. It is so infectious and contagious. I find myself laughing at jokes I've heard already in rehearsal simply because of the spontaneity of laughter and how infectious it is. Mm. And, of course, the actors miss it terribly. Well, here's hoping we get back to those uh, warm moments when uh, the performers are able to do their best and we get to sit and enjoy, applaud, laugh, cry, and all the good stuff the arts can only produce. Catherine. Absolutely. It is such a positive experience for everyone. Indeed it is. Catherine, thank you for this update. We appreciate it. We wish you continued success. We'll keep our fingers crossed for that meeting coming up with the minister and uh, representatives of the community. And thank you, Sterling, for bringing this to the public attention. My we pleasure. We really appreciate it.